Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Al and with me is Jerry. For our first series of episodes, we're going through the catalog of the legendary English progressive rock band Pink Floyd. If you're listening to this and you are likely no stranger to the band, they are, after all, one of the most popular recording artists in the history of rock and popular music. For this episode, we'll be discussing the band's third album. It's a soundtrack to the film More and Jerry. Uh, We were just talking uh, about the film More and uh, we don't have a whole lot of great things to say about the movie. We'll, we'll start this episode talking about the movie just because it is relevant to uh, a bunch of the individual songs, but we won't labor over it. Um, what kind of uh, things do you have to say about the film more? The film itself is not a terrible, awful film. I mean, you can tell that they, uh, the people who put it together were committed and they were trying to make a motion picture and, and technically it's a certainly a serviceable job it's very much a, a film of its time but as far as the story is concerned and the characters the characters really aren't too sympathetic and the story is very much it's a bummer man it's um it's the movie didn't age very well at all. It really <laughs> no, did not. It did not. And um, I think, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's a competently made film. It's um, it's not an embarrassing, you know, it's not some kind of a movie that you watch and laugh at with friends because of how uh, they couldn't get the the camera to focus on the the subject or is you know, that a boom mic? Yeah, yes, it is. There's a scene and not for missing. the last time, <laughs> right? Um, it's just I agree. It's it's a it's a very dated film. Uh, briefly, the the plot of the film is we have a, a young man. He's a he's a German uh, a student, a recently graduated college student. Uh, his name is Stefan because I think they're all named Stefan in these sort of. 60s euro trash movies but except um, in spain where they are esteban <laughs> yes and uh he decides after uh school he's going to go off and uh see some things and live a little bit so he goes to uh, paris and he gets mixed up with this girl who uh over time we discover she's a bit of a drug addict and um it does not uh, they, they they form a relationship they uh, have some run-ins with some, we think he's a Nazi um, in hiding. Uh, Nazi drug pushers. Yeah. Stay away from them. They're, it's never a good idea to get involved with, with those types. And so, um, you know, things do not end well for young Stefan. Um, there's a lot of uh, gratuitous nudity. There's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of bad acting, in my opinion. I don't think it's a very well-acted film. Uh, but the soundtrack is far out, man. And I think that is the uh, that's the movie's calling card. If you're going to watch it today, you're watching it because of the Pink Floyd connection. Um, so the the band um, at this point in their career, two albums in, a handful of singles, and uh, they are still uh, the underground Pink Floyd. They have not broken mainstream at all, but they are they do have their following. They do have their audience, and it is the Pink Floyd audience that this film is trying to reach and what a score by the director to get the band to write the songs for the movie for the audience that you're trying to reach well there was i'm sure i'm sure it was a symbiotic relationship in that pink floyd themselves this this is their first soundtrack gig that i'm aware of 
So I think in that sense, they were going, hey, we're working on films now, moving on up. So it was good for them and the director, the people who, who made the film, uh, obviously knew Pink Floyd was had a following of sorts and thought to themselves that, well, these guys are good, they're interesting, I like them or we like them, let's use them to, to do the uh, soundtrack to the film. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, we'll leave that to the film production itself or the, the actual story itself. But I think it's important to note that if you are watching the film for the Pink Floyd, uh, well, they're not in the, in the movie either, and the music itself is very incidental. There are times where it's playing on a radio or at a party, so it's not like, ooh, here's the sequence where the cool Pink Floyd music is playing, and check out this scene. Isn't it incredible? There's nothing like that at all. It just it has to be made clear. It just happens to be a movie that has some early Pink Floyd music in it. It uh, The only thing it's lacking is is an early incarnation of the Floyd in the corner of some, you know, dirty pub in France playing, you know, playing in the background. That's the only thing it lacks. If it had had that, it would probably would have been a more notable film. Yeah, I feel like uh, that um, the band being in the movie... I agree. Would have been a nice, uh, a nice touch uh, because you're right. The a lot of the a lot of the music that they wrote and recorded for the film, it's not really treated as a, a, a normal film score. It's not just music that plays under a scene. It is the music that the characters are listening to in the scene, whether they're at a party or in a bar or um, listening on a cassette, whatever, whatever the or record, whatever the circumstances are. The music from the film that Pink Floyd created is the music that the characters are listening to. Which I'm sure at the time was a real uh, forward-thinking, you know, heavy, progressive, hey, you know, we're, we're not going to just have normal soundtrack music. This isn't Lawrence of Arabia. The, uh, the, the music that the audience is going to hear, that's what the, the characters in the film are listening to as well. And boy, isn't that innovative. And I'm sure for the time it was innovative. And that sort of thing has been done since then. But it's really just kind of a mishmash. And it's not really a... It doesn't do anything for the film. It doesn't detract from it either. But it certainly wasn't as innovative, I think, as perhaps the people who made the decisions to go that direction thought it would be. Yeah, and you know, Elephant in the Room. We haven't really talked about it through the first couple of albums, um, but you know, the the drug culture uh, that um, was was prevalent at this time, and in the underground scene where Pink Floyd was was playing their shows, and um, in this movie in particular, is is all about the underground drug culture and. Uh, it's it's sort of a cautionary tale, but it's also sort of a glamorized um, cautionary tale. Um, it, I don't know that the film can quite make up its mind if uh, Hey Man isn't all this cool versus Hey Man Watch Out is not very cool. Uh, um, the, the, the band's music is definitely a soundtrack to a lot of 
uh, people's drug trips at this point, and and would continue to be to be quite honest. But um, this is, I think, the only time that I can really think of where the band itself seems to be directly um, uh, acknowledging and embracing that part of the the scene that they're in. Um, on other albums, especially later on, I definitely feel like you know whatever whatever drug use is happening, whatever um, enhancements uh, the band or the audience may be uh, partaking in to enjoy the music. I always felt like the music was um, it sort of rose above that. Uh, with this particular project, I feel like the two are sort of they're they're in a, a much more close relationship than they are elsewhere in the band's catalog. I can see that. I think part of that, maybe a, a significant part of that, is is the band itself. I would imagine treated this as a job, which it was, and they were given instructions or at least given uh, ideas on what to work with. You know, the, we want a song that will fit in this scene. Of course, uh, they were aware of what the movie was about and more than likely had a loose idea on how the story would go, if not the script itself. But, you know, this is a movie about young people in Europe and it's sort of a love story, but there's... You know the tragedy of uh, drug abuse and getting mixed up with sketchy people, and getting into sketchy circumstances. Uh, that itself was something that they were uh, catering to because that was the gig that they had been hired for. Uh, I don't think it was them uh, acknowledging in, in a open eyes. Hey, the Floyd is. We know that there are people who take drugs who listen to us and. We love them, too. It was really more of, I think, them trying to do a... I imagine this. I mean, you have to ask uh, the surviving members, but it would. It seems to me that this was really more of them doing a job. They were making music as a matter of... It was a gig for them to do, and that was the subject matter they were addressing. That said, it doesn't seem like it's overly pandering. It's not like they are making, well, they are, in a sense, making wild and way-out music, as Pink Floyd is prone to do, but they don't turn it up to 11, per se. It's, uh, it goes back and forth, and they're, they're, the music, there is music for scenes, and there's music for stuff that's going on in the film, but it's not some giant conglomeration of uh, the the perils of drug use and hey, we're off on the acid trip now and everybody freak out and isn't this grand. That isn't the direction they were going, at least in my eye. That's not what I was seeing, the the music, their contribution to this movie. That's not what they were uh, driving for. They were trying to serve the story as much as they could, it seems to me. Yeah, and that's what the story is about. I mean, it's, it's, it's an album that is, I think, sort of in between something where... Sergeant Pepper or Magical Mystery Tour where there's kind of a wink and a nod but we're not coming right out and saying what we're doing uh, or what we're singing about and something on the other spectrum, uh, side of the spectrum where it's like Jefferson Airplane where we are singing about drugs. Um, right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's in between. Definitely not a, 
it's not a concept album by by any even taken outside of it being a soundtrack album for the movie uh, more it's certainly not a you can't you wouldn't listen to this album and go oh yeah I follow the story I see what's happening here uh, the album itself, when you take it outside the confines of it being a soundtrack to the film, is just a collection of things that Pink Floyd put together and recorded. It's very uh, disjointed in that respect. Yeah, it's a patchwork album, but it is, like you said, it's a commission job. The band was paid to do the job. Um, it's a soundtrack, so the musical ideas, the lyrical ideas, uh, the rhythms, the tempos, the timbre of the songs are dictated by someone else's art, the, the film itself. So, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of interesting. And before, before this, uh, this, this project, I had never uh, watched the film before, and I, I watched it uh, just a couple weeks ago. And I, and I will say that my appreciation for the album as a whole was increased by having seen the film. Um, because before, the more album I think is one a lot of Pink Floyd fans would not return to very often. Um, it's certainly one that I had not put on to listen to frequently. Maybe in my entire life I've heard this album front to back you know, less than 10 times, I think. Um, which is I don't say- own a copy of it, and I first heard it years ago because a friend had it and it was uh at the time i remember being excited about it going "Ooh, it's a pink floyd album i haven't heard and "Ooh, it's a soundtrack to a movie i haven't seen and this ought to be cool and as it was it was just kind of meh i mean there's some there's some interesting songs on it and there's you know some good ones as well uh nothing that really stands out and blows you away it's not bad Uh, it's not a bad album at all yeah, it's not a bad album. It's not something you listen to and go, oh, man, this whole thing is full of stinkers. It's just because it is a soundtrack album and it's a soundtrack full of cuts that are serving a story to the extent that they were the directions they were taking, uh, it's, it's very hit or miss from song to song. And uh, with that in mind, are we, shall we go ahead and uh, begin with the first cut, Cirrus Minor? On a trip to Cirrus Minor, so great Yeah, Cirrus Minor, um, a, a track from, you know, all, all of the tracks are out of order. None of the songs as presented on the album are in the order as they appear in the film. And um, as an opener, it's a very, you know, I, sp- I spoke on the last album on Saucerful, how, how the band has a knack for picking openers um, that really sort of jump out and grab you. And this is, this is one of the outliers, I think, that doesn't necessarily do that. It's a, it's a very pleasant song. It's a very mellow song. We start with birds <laughs> for about a minute. Uh, and not for the last time. Yeah. And <laughs> there more birds to come. Stay tuned. Um, the... The the song is an acoustic guitar led um, track. We have some very echoey um, uh, effects on some of the on some of the the vocals. We have some nice little Rick Wright organ uh, notes in it. It's it's not a uh, you're not your ears aren't going to perk up and say oh what's this then? But it is a nice pleasant song. 
Yeah, there's nothing about it that stands out in a bad way uh, that makes you you wince and go, oh god, that's that's awful. It's it's it's. I like the way you put that, and I agree. It's 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 pleasant. It's not really particularly abrasive, and nor is it sugary sweet. Uh, I noticed or noted that uh, I believe it's the first David Gilmour acoustic song for Pink Floyd, or where he right, plays yeah. acoustic. Yeah, you might I be believe, right. On that. I believe he's playing electric, probably a Stratocaster. Uh, before this point on all the albums. Of course, this is only the second album he has played on, but it, it's notable that he does play acoustic on it. It's, you know, my thought was it's, it has a, the song itself has a, a tranquility of summer. It's kind of sad. And uh, in relation to the film, it it's, it's, seems to me to, to be suggesting it's all going to end badly. And it's kind of dreary, uh, but I did like it when Rick's keyboards came in. It, it, Rick has a knack, has a feel for what I like to call a church organ atmosphere, and it's you know, he's, Rick was definitely all about atmospheres. But when Rick's keyboards come in, it's kind of a a touchstone to grab onto. Uh, go, ah, okay, this is Pink Floyd. It's not just some random guy who happens to be David Gilmour playing his acoustic guitar. There's Rick's keyboards. Okay, I recognize who these guys are. And there's the echo modulation, like you you mentioned, for the uh, vocals. And um, it's, um, on on that note, as far as Rick's, uh, you know, taking us to church is concerned, he does with because there are it's overdubbed. There's or overdubs on it. There's discordance going on. There's you know at one point I was it was evocative of a like a police or an ambulance siren, not directly so, but that's what it struck inside me, and uh, which was I think another kind of dire suggestion of the downward spiral of the movie of it of the direction the movie takes. And um, overall, Cirrus Minor is just kind of, it's a dirge and it's depressing. <laughs> it's, it's a bummer trip, man. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember, and I, I don't, uh, I'm afraid for a lot of the tracks, I'm not going to remember clearly what part of the film uh, this song plays under. But uh, you're right in that it does have that sort of uh, foreboding sound to it where, it's not. It's the first track on the album. It is not the first song you hear in the movie. It comes, I think, much later in the film. Once the characters have started to sort of go down their downward spiral, um, but it does have that feel of like, yeah, this is uh, this is a story that won't end well. Don't get too attached to anybody. Uh, right. <laughs> don't 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 put all of your hearts uh, in this basket, so to speak. Um, it does musically. It reminded me of sort of a child of "Set the Controls" and "Saucer Full of Secrets." The the song "Saucer Full of Secrets." It's got some elements from both of those. And you know, I think I'll take this this moment to mention that um, this is the third album from the band. It's only the second one after Sid Barrett's uh, departure from the group. So it's still a band who's trying to to find their identity in their way. Um, and so Roger Waters 
writing this track and being a songwriter on I think all but two songs on this album um, you know, he was either a writer or a co-writer on all but two songs. That's that's Roger becoming um, the leading songwriter of the group. He's he's the one that has the the musical ideas that they flesh into these longer uh, pieces and these longer songs. Um, and we're going to see that throughout this album and into the next several that that Roger Waters is going to become the 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 major songwriting force. And it starts here with uh, with the more soundtrack. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's nice to see. Uh, of course, they really didn't have much choice in the matter. It was well, they had other choices. They had the other guys in the band, but someone had to pick up the, you know, pick up the uh, the, the the baton, I guess, and run with it. And this was the I'm not going to say so much the first time because there was the previous album, uh, but it's. Roger is starting to, this is nice to see Roger, he's legitimately becoming a songwriter here. I mean, he's, or turning out interesting work and not, you know, another Corporal Clegg or anything like that. Right. He's, he's uh, becoming a, you know, the, the man he would be become and become renowned for, you know, one of the, one of the great songwriters song producers just a a force in music really yeah and i think a singular it, and important force he he's got on on the previous album you know he had let there be more light and set the controls for the heart of the sun and then uh, you know obviously the the band all four of them writing on saucer full of secrets the track um you know he's the one at this point though with with the more soundtrack he's he's the one coming in with the musical ideas he's the one that's writing all of the lyrics and that would be a theme that we'd see continue throughout uh throughout the band's uh history um but as far you know going back to Cirrus minor itself it's um you know i think to sum it up it's it's a nice little song it's uh, it's got a very sad sound to it it's it's pleasant and um, and that's all I really have to say about it. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I, and I agree entirely, there's nothing more that needs to be said about it. So let's move on to the Nile song. And um, to me, when I, when I hear this song, and this is a song that I... That I was have been reasonably familiar with over time. It's one of the more standout Pink Floyd songs from, if you want to call it a sub era, their you know post Sid Barrett, pre Dark Side of the Moon. This is one that stands out. It it it's 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 almost as if it's like, shall we try some hard rock, lads? All right then. Yeah. And uh, and off they go. It's uh, it's. It's a complete turn on the dime from their psychedelic jazz freakout, and it's a complete turn from their soft, wistful uh, David Gilmour guitar plinking and, and string bands. It's These guys are just rocking out. I love this song. I love the Nile song. Um, it, it Especially after Cirrus Minor, it just it hits you like a ton of bricks from, from the first opening uh, seconds of it uh it's, it's like it's, a truck yeah it's it's 
Gilmore's got his fuzz pedal or whatever effect he's got on his guitar on his rhythm guitar and it's it's coming through nick mason is going to town on the drums um the vocals gilmore's vocals he's he's full-on screaming these things out and um it's it's a great little pink floyd going heavy metal for a second uh with a little bit of hendrix yeah absolutely and hendrix of course at the time was a as influential as he was then, they were, you know, they were colleagues. They were on the same tours during this period. Uh, they, or, or well, years, several years before, but they were familiar with each other, and I'm sure had each other's respect. And uh, Hendrix was a huge influence as far as you know the heavy fuzz and just the distorted guitar. Um, it must have been an amazing song live, and and it's note, it's notable that uh, Nick Mason's "Saucer Full of Secrets." Uh, does a cover it cover of it, and I looked at a few videos on YouTube of uh, Nick's uh, "Saucer Full of Secrets" d- covering the Nile song, and the crowd reacts rec- accordingly. I mean, there it's you know f- fingers in the air making the hook'em horns or the devil sign, <laughs> and it's uh, you know people pumping their chins and pumping their fists and just rocking out. It's uh, it's 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 rock and roll. It's pure, unadulterated rock and roll. It is far from progressive. It's almost punk rock, you know, with uh, how uh, Dave is uh, screaming into the mic. And, um, you know, it's the hardest Nick has banged on the drums for almost any Pink Floyd, except for, you know, maybe one of these days. And it's almost as if he's banging on it so hard just so he can hear himself over Dave's amps. Yeah. Um, Dave is certainly, he's channeling Richie Blackmore and deep purple was becoming a very, very muscular and popular band at the time. And they were uh, perhaps one of the leaders with black Sabbath of the heavy quote unquote acid rock sound, you know, heavy distortion and on the, on the rhythm and with a loud lead and, you know, it was the type of music that would horrify your grandparents and your, your pastors. You know, turn that noise down. <laughs> the song totally rocks. Yeah, it's um, it's a good shot of energy, especially after Cirrus Minor, um, where for the first few minutes after putting on the album, you're kind of lulled into it. All right, it's a mellow Pink Floyd uh, uh, collection here. Let's let's turn the lights out low, and then all of a sudden, here comes the Nile song. And uh, they, they do this again on, on side two of the album, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But um, I really like it when Pink Floyd um, sort of does let it all hang out. Um, there's, there's tracks like um, Run Like Hell. There's tracks like, um, e- even on, on Dark Side, things where uh, the song Money goes to, into the solo and it goes into that 4-4 time. Like when, when Pink Floyd puts their mind to it, they can be a pretty darn good rock and roll band. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a part of their their famous popularity over the years is that they were they grew into a band that became very capable of playing what people wanted to hear and doing it well. And obviously they had been playing for a long time at this point a long time as bands are concerned with many, many live shows under their belt, uh, they just uh, were 
you know, shall we rock out, lads? Okay, let's go. And they do. And it's almost as if they, in fact, it, when I think about it, they, they must have done it this way. I doubt if there's really much of any overdubs on the recording. I think they just played it live in the studio and... Yeah, it has. You know, it made has a, that, made a few cup, made a few attempts, and then took what they liked. I'd have to look and listen to it again to listen for any sort of obvious overdubs. But this is a this is a live crashing. You know, here we go, one, two, three, four, and they play the song. Yeah, it's it sounds like they walked into the studio that day, plugged in their gear, and said, "Let's go," and started crashing into it. Now the whole album. Uh, Varying reports was it was it seven days, eight days, nine days, but it was it was not much more than a week of studio time to get this thing recorded beginning to end, and they were doing a lot of writing in the studio as well. So yeah, I don't think there's uh, time or or money or um, I think for this or song, inclination for that matter, yeah, no desire to go through an overdub and get too precious with it. Let's just go in and rock this one out. Right, and it serves the Is song it- really well. I'm very glad that Nick Mason's Saucerville Secrets chose this as one of the one of the period songs for them to do because it's there's there's Pink Floyd the soft lilting progressive and there's Pink Floyd that gets hard and cynical and paranoid uh, devolving into insanity and then there's the when the lads just play some rock and roll. And that's a uh, that's attractive if you're a rock and roll fan, which I believe most Pink Floyd fans are. And uh, you know, it's a song that the it didn't take long for the band to I think pick up on the fact that this is one of the better tracks from from this era and from this album in particular. It shows up again on uh, Relics as uh, part of that compilation. Um, it, I think it got considered. It was on the short list of tracks for uh, the career retrospectives later on, the the Echoes and Foot in the Door Best of collection. So it did get, um, from the band at least, it did get its its due later on as like, you know, you got to pick a track from the Moore soundtrack. The Nile song is one that will perk up your ears and make you listen. Um, I think it's it's definitely a standout track for the, uh, for the side, if not the album. Um, and then we get into the next one, the crying song. We climb and climb. We climb. The crying song, do tell. And uh, we're we we've shifted. This is an album of shifts. Um, it we we started Cirrus Minor, very mellow, very sort of pretty. Um, and then we get into uh, Hard Rock and Nile Song, and then Crying Song brings it back down. And maybe that's, um, now that I'm thinking out loud about it, it, it might be part of the intent with the sequencing of the album to give that feeling that the characters are having in the film, if we want to relate this back to the film, of sort of the ups and downs and the highs and lows of the relationship that the characters are going through. Um, in the Which movie. would make sense in terms of the uh, of spacing the album or the songs on the album to give that up and down, so there's a a, a flow to the album itself, yeah. as opposed to being a 
representation of their efforts for the film itself. They're not following the film per se on the soundtrack album. They're presenting the soundtrack album of this music they created for the movie as an album unto itself. Yeah, because in in the film, this is uh, this is one of the better examples of. Uh, the music being um, something that the characters in the scene are listening to. It, there's a there's a scene where they are uh, the characters in the film are um, I can't remember if they're going on a trip or they're coming back down from a trip, but they have a little crappy uh, cassette um, recorder, and uh, this is the song that the characters play on the cassette, and they're listening to the music while they're you know after they've had a long day of dealing drugs and doing drugs. Um, it fits the scene in that uh, in that respect. It's um, it's got an apt name, the crying song. It does have a sort of crying, whining um, guitar uh, from David. It's got uh, lyrics uh, and melody that are very uh, elongated, sort of crying melodies. Um, so it's an apt name for a song. It's 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 a break though. There's no drumming on it that I can recall. I think this is where Nick got to take a break and have a cup of tea off in the in another room. Um, it's it's pleasant. It's it's another it's another song for me. I, I liken it to Cirrus Minor. It's pleasant while it plays. Um, on its own though, I don't think it's going to to stand out for many people. It works better as a as a song in the film than it does as a song on an album. Yeah, this is definitely a uh, a movie song, I guess you could say. You know, a, you yeah. know, a mood enhancer. You know, it's it's music for the film itself, and it's in that respect not really a standout as certainly as a song that you would put on. Um, you know, Rick has some nice harmonies, and you know, it when it starts, it's it felt like shop, shopping music to me. <laughs> uh, you know, stores, you know, playing you know some some light, some music, uh, very non-confrontational uh, jazz in the background. You're browsing housewares. It's uh, just uh, very light and inoffensive, and you know, it's uh, itself. It's a you know, as far as the lyrics are concerned, and uh, as the song progresses, it's it gets a little bit more heavy or a little bit deeper about you know carrying stones and uh, or 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 you know rolling the stone, and it's just uh, you know there's some heavier stuff going on as far as the weight of the world is concerned, but in of itself, it's kind of done with this sort of happy, light, carefree atmosphere. And, but taken as a whole, it's, it's, in, it's insubstantial. It does not strike me as anything remarkable. I put it in my notes that the, the song is almost too pretty in its pure state. Um, in the film, they're, the, they're listening to it on this very tiny little cassette player. It's, um, it's got a very tinny sound. It sounds like the like the way it sounds in the film. It sound it reminded me of like you know a, a very long Sunday afternoon evening, just a, a very slow afternoon evening kind of a song. It's just kind of playing and it's there and you kind of want to turn it off, but you can't be bothered to get up and turn it off. It's just kind of playing the soundtrack to your long lazy afternoon. Um, that that said though, you know, on 
it's it's not again it's not a bad song it's not um i, I don't want to turn it off it's just not something that i'm going to um go put the more soundtrack on because i really want to hear the crying song today well with with all that said i think we should move on to the next song up the kyber oh let's talk all about up uh, the kyber <laughs> Up the Kyber, which stood out to me, not the song, it's not the piece itself, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, you know, Rick going, Nick, let's start banging on the drums and Nick going, okay, Rick, a little jazz piano, if you please. And then we'll do some overdubs. Now, what stood out to me was the title itself, (laughs) you know, the, the Kyber as in the Kyber pass of, you know, having much to do with. British history, certainly British Victorian history. The Kuiper Pass, for people who are not familiar, is a strategically important uh, piece of geography between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, and I won't go into it deeper than that, but it's that the, the Kuiper Pass is a significant and notable place for British history. Uh, you know, the Custer's Last Stand might be one of those for. American history, but that said, that has nothing to do with the movie itself. It's uh, it's Nick working out on the drums. Um, it's uh, possibly the first Pink Floyd piece after Gilmore joined the band that doesn't have Gilmore on it. And uh, this is one also notably that's this is a Nick and Rick piece. This is you know this isn't Roger Waters or David Gilmore. They weren't uh, really involved, except for maybe some of the overdubs later on, perhaps. But, you know, it's a quick little jazz exploration uh, with some discordance. And, um, you know, this is this is their, uh, I kind of saw this as their crazy drug abuse drama song. It was nothing really, uh, um, it, it isn't really a musical piece in of itself. This isn't a song per se. It's, this is this is more of a mood. It's it's definitely a mood piece. It's um, it's used in the film as uh, the 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 female protagonist. Um, her name is Estelle. Is is now in debt to the Nazi drug lord, and that's not a, a place you want to be. <laughs> no, no. How could you even find yourself in such a position, Estelle? Good point. Um, Good question. Yeah, but now she's she's having to push drugs and. Uh, it's 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 the other side of the tape uh, from uh, crying song. Flip the tape over. Here's the freak out. Here's where everything's falling apart around you. It's a good tie-in with the visuals um, that you're seeing in the film. It it fits that part of the story, and I can imagine the band watching the film. From what I understood, they they would watch scenes from the film, time them out with the stopwatch to kind of get an idea of how long the piece would have to be and what visuals the the music was going to be up against and then they would retreat back to the studio and and put something to tape and this is a good example of like okay nick rick let's go uh make a little something that's kind of crazy it's a freak out man that's what's going on here and uh would it be on a floyd album if it wasn't a soundtrack i don't think so i don't think if they had come in with this piece and said let's put this on our next album i don't think roger and david would have 
taken it at face value, I think it would have been worked on a little bit more. But um, as a yeah, piece of absolutely. music, yeah, as a piece of music for the film, it works for the scene that it's in. Again, not very much something that I'm going to go back and listen to just because I want to hear up the Kyber today. Agreed entirely. It's uh, this is a uh, soundtrack album song. It's this is uh, for the movie and nothing. It's like like many of these little pieces that are on this album. Uh, it's uh, it's nothing that's going to end up on their any any greatest hits compilations or anything like that. <laughs> We're not. So let's uh, let's move on to uh, Green is the color. Before we do, are you telling me that the next Pink Floyd greatest hits compilation is not going to be called Up the Kyber, the best of Pink Floyd? Uh, probably not. It could, it, it could be, there could be some Kyber or something to deal with, uh, uh Vic, Victorian England thrown into it. Uh, as far as name referencing the Kyber or the Kyber pass, probably not. It's, it, it's a little bit dated yeah. really. It, it, even now in the 21st century, that much more dated. Well, let's uh, let's take your suggestion and let's move on to the next track. Green is the color. And this is one that um, I listened to a good two or three times this morning um, because this is the one song on the album that it just for whatever reason it always slips out of my mind as like I can't quite remember how it goes until I hear the penny whistle. Right. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is the one with the penny whistle. Okay, got it. Um, it's not a bad song. Um, it's, it's, for me, a forgettable one. It's kind of one of those fleeting songs that, that comes on, and you like it while it's playing enough, and then it kind of kind of fades away, and you're, you're done with it. And it, it's, it's hard for me... Um, speaking for myself, to remember this this song just from its title. For me, this song is a... It's, it's a standout to some extent, if only because uh, um, some Pink Floyd fans might be familiar with this. Uh, when the Floyd went through, did, did their American tour in 1970, they stopped in San Francisco... Uh, for a live outdoor show that apparently didn't go too well, but also they stopped at the local public television station, KQED, and recorded, uh, I can't remember, four or five different songs, uh, about an hour, maybe an hour or two's worth of music, and Green is the Color is one of the songs they recorded. And so this is one that I have seen them do I guess you could say live in the sense live on a stage with no audience. And it is a really, it's that version, which is the one that I'm more familiar with. And I, you know, I'd heard this one on more, but you know, the penny whistle, I remembered that, but the one, the live recording from the KQED recording is a very nice version. And it's just, a, you know, this is definitely, this is showcasing David Gilmore. You know, his guitar is just nice and sweet. His the beautiful honey voice of David Gilmore, his sweet vocals, um, David Gilmore guitar licks. Uh, this, this band played it live for two years. Uh, it was a 
I think in the era, I mean, I was too young for to know this at the time, but for the era, this was one of the standout Pink Floyd songs that wasn't uh, careful with that Axe Eugene or uh, uh, Astronomy Domine or Set the Controls for Heart of the Sun. This was their, this was the song The Girlfriends, you know, the guys who took their their chicks to the uh, show. This is the one the girlfriends wanted to hear. It's a, it's a, it's a very nice song. It's uh, not a, an epic jazz exploration or anything like that. It's really more Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It's just a, you know, sweet, inoffensive, but kind of deeply involved. Not involving, but you know, there, there's. There's some heart movement going on with it. It definitely has some heart to it. Uh, the Penny Whistle, I think, detracts from that, which is why I like the KQED recording more. It dates than, it. than this version. Yeah, but, the, Penny uh, Whistle, the Penny Whistle dates this. It, it makes it sound like a 1969 recording. Exactly, exactly. It's a... You know, we'll throw in some... We're an electronic band. We're electronic rock and roll but we're going to put in our nice wind acoustic instrument here and uh, do a sort of a ballad going on. But uh, it's, you know, in that respect, obviously they're serving the film here as opposed to, but that said, this is a song that, you know, they took, you know, they, they wrote for the movie, but they, uh, they, they went with it. They used it. Uh, for a few years after live in concert. It's one that uh, struck a chord with them in any case. Yeah, and, um, you know, lyrically, I think this is one of the stronger tracks on, on the album. I, I like the lyrics. It, it, it's, um, it's a song that's played in the film where the, our, our main character, Stefan, is getting wrapped up in... The, the early stages of a relationship and love affair with Estelle and he knows that she's got she's you know he's been warned by other characters in the film stay away stay away but he can't help himself and so it's kind of a love theme it's kind of also um uh, uh, uh it's a song when when you, you know what happens to the characters by the end of the film and the story like ah this was this is where he had his his chance to maybe make some different choices and get away from his from his fate, but uh, it didn't work out that way. So uh, lyrically, I do like this one um, maybe more than than the rest on the album from from the from a lyrical standpoint. I feel like this is a, a song that you know you said Crosby, Stills and Nash. I say Neil Young. I mean they're kind of they're related acts for sure, but I think Neil Young could cover this one. It sounds very. Um, of that Surely era. Surely as high as Dave sings it. Yeah. And and maybe this is a good time to point out, you know, all these tracks, every every song on the album features Dave or David Gilmore singing singing the vocals. They're, they're words and lyrics by Roger Waters, but he's given over singing duty to David Gilmore. I don't know if that's um, sort of a conscious decision that Hey, David's got the sweet voice. Let him sing. Um, where you know Roger, I don't think Roger was ever really known as a, a particularly strong vocalist. He can he can do what he needs to do on songs that sort of fit his range and and suit his his vocal style. But David Gilmour is is becoming the um, the the singer of the band more and more, uh, pun intended, with this with this album. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely a showcase for for Gilmore, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and going back to something that you mentioned earlier, this is a showcase in of itself of Waters. You know, Waters has has written a really a damn good song here. It's it's you know, the, the interesting lyrics and as far as it being for the movie itself, it's. It's representative for the movie, uh, but it, it can stand on its own outside of the movie. You know, he wrote some. The lyrics I think are strong, and you know, the, just a. Uh, it's a good effort on his part. It really is, and it's. Uh, you can see why they. They continue to, or you can hear why they continue to play it live over the following few years. It's. Uh, it's clear that Waters liked it, and. It's clear that David could sing it well and make it a, a very interesting and, I guess, agreeable song. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, it's a it's a standout in that respect. I think not just for Pink Floyd fans and fans of this era of the band, but I think this is a song that the band itself thought was a an important one or one that they should continue to continue doing. Yeah. And, and more and more as I keep using more and more, uh, <laughs> it's, that's it's, quite all right. It's not that's a, it's not on it purpose, but it is, it is appropriate, I guess. But, you know, as we go through these early albums, uh, I, I would like to, I, I feel, I feel myself being urged to, um, dig into the early years, um, the, the box set, um, that the band put out a few years ago that collects a lot of these live performances, uh, BBC sessions, television performances uh, that that feature songs that um, are on these early albums that, you know, after a certain point, the band uh, retired a lot of these songs. And that's, that's one of the exciting things about Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets is that a lot of these tracks that have been have been forgotten or, or neglected, uh, get their get their due. They get to come back and get a, a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air and taken out of, of storage and and put out on display again. So um, I would like to go and and do sort of what you've done and and go find some some live performances and see how these songs translate to a live performance. And I think a lot of them uh, are are more telling in the live performance. What the the nature of the song is. A lot of these tracks on the soundtrack. You're um, you're constrained by time or by uh, the the demands of the film on the song where once you're in a live performance, the song can really open up and become what it's meant to be. So, yeah, I think maybe after we, we're, we're done recording this, I might go and, and dive into some of those things. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there, certainly here in this the age of YouTube. And I, I really, I encourage listeners to do that I think a lot of Pink Floyd fans have probably gone down those various rabbit holes already. But when you hear a song on an album like More as a soundtrack album, uh, but really anything, if you can find a live version of it, it can be very eye-opening to go and hear a live uh, version of it uh, or even several live versions of it to see what direction the band is going or the risks they are taking and what they're using, what they're discarding. And this is a, this is one of those songs that, you know, 
since it was a song that they did continue playing live, that they were able to develop per se and get the most out of it, I guess, as opposed to this is a uh, this is specifically for the film itself. They took it as part of they made it part of their show and got the most out of it. And it's it's one of the early examples of of the David Gilmour that Pink Floyd would would uh, Pink Floyd fans would come to know and and recognize very clearly. You know, David Gilmour on guitar, David Gilmour singing, uh, and not so much to say that David Gilmour is Pink Floyd, although it kind of became that. You know, yeah. <laughs> many years later, in in, uh, in the year twenty twenty two, I think yes, absolutely. Although da- in the year twenty twenty two, I imagine David Gilmore would disagree, yeah, or just not bother with it. But uh, well, it, and, and and just to to sort of expand on that point a little bit, you know, when I when I found the band in in my teenage years, it was it was the nineties, and Pink Floyd was. David Gilmore's band and so absolutely the 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 division bell was the new album at the time and the the pulse uh, live album and video were really in my early introduction to the band so you know those those performances on pulse and the performances on the delicate sound of thunder from the momentary lapse tour um, not they're they're excellent performances they are very technical and very clinical um, when compared to the kinds of performances early in the band's career uh, where the the arrangements were a lot looser the band was improvising a lot more on stage you know by by the time that the band became the ultra successful version of the band uh, that from where I discovered them you know they were playing uh, live in concert to screen projections that were timed out to light shows and pyrotechnics and well maybe not so much pyrotechnics but definitely like lasers and things that were programmed to coincide and be timed with the performances so there wasn't as much room maybe for those uh those songs to breathe and become something different on stage than they were on the album uh here with green is the color with other tracks on more and saucerful and sort of from this era you've got live performances that are much more free much more open varied uh from performance to performance certainly from live to studio you've got something to discover with the live performances more so than in their later years well, that was very much the state of the industry at the time. Yeah, you know, rock was, or at least rock and roll, as a traveling uh, arena act, I guess, of the era, was for the far greater part uh, was you know bands with their amplifiers and probably their own PA if they were you know a reasonably successful band going from town to town and the equipment gets set up and they go out and play and uh, the they probably do a sound check and they mess around with the sound check and you know they try different things and or they try different things live and so in that respect you do get the songs evolving as they move forwards certainly it's a much more fertile ground for evolution as opposed to the later years where it's a full-blown Cirque du Soleil you know, trap road show mm-hmm. with, as you 
said, you know, the, the lasers and the lights and the you know, screen projections and the a lot of stuff being timed out because it just had to be timed out. There was a lot more freedom in the earlier days to, to I guess, make mistakes and uh, or discover uh, wonderful things. Uh, Green is the Color is one of those songs where they it was something they created in the studio and but it, it became something maybe not so uh, radically different over the years that they the couple of years they did play it live it did become more refined and it's a it's a, in that respect certainly it's a, it's a very memorable song it's one of the standouts of the uh, of the period certainly well it's 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 one that again i i have a hard time recalling by name until i hear a little clip of it i'm like oh yes it's that one but um that's not to take away from the strength of the song while you're listening to it and um yeah uh i'll have to dig out some some live performances and see how the how the track evolved over over some time because you know this this album recorded in a week you're not gonna you're not gonna noodle around too much you got to get it done boys we got to move on to the next one um, it is notable, and but, but I just want to make this point before we do move on to the next one, yeah. that it is notable that in the short period of time that they were uh, putting out, uh, they were creating and recording for this soundtrack, that they were able to create a song like Green is the Color. You know, that in itself, you know, Penny Whistle notwithstanding, you know, the, <laughs> and the dated sound of that, it's a, it's a, it's a good song. It's yeah. just a... It's a very nice, well-constructed piece. I, I like it a lot. Well, and I have a, a, a lot of similar things to say about our, our next track, Cymbeline. Uh, for me, this one is its a highlight on the album for me. Um, it, it ranks up with the Nile song and uh, with some tracks on side B that I like, but Cymbeline is, it's a very strong Roger Waters composition. We have David delivering uh, a vocal performance that really does it justice. Uh, Nick's drumming is, is excellent. The piano lines from Rick are, are very well done. It's um, It's got little hints here and there uh, lyrically of what uh, will become more uh, Roger Waters and Pink Floyd subject material for for subsequent albums and songs, um, which we can talk about here in a minute. But overall, I think Cymbeline is um, one of the the top three or four strongest tracks on the album. Yeah, you know, without going into ranking them at this at this stage of it, I agree entirely. It's a it's a, I like it as much as I like Green is the color. It's a it's a real catchy tune, and there's familiar handholds for the listener. Whether it's Roger griping about the music business or you know, referencing World War II, um, you know, or even his name dropping Doctor Strange. Yeah, it's, Doctor Strange makes another appearance. It, it, that itself is very cool, and. Um, as far as Rick is concerned, it's him uh, channeling the soft machine again. You know, Mike Ratledge. It's uh, it, it definitely a soft machine sound to the to the keyboards, and uh, the song's a gem. You know, David sings it as wonderfully as he is prone prone to do, as usual. 
but uh, it's a it's as as standout as green as the color is. Cymbeline is that, and even more so. Yeah, I, I like the line especially um, that goes. Uh... The Ravens are all closing in. There's nowhere you can hide. Your manager and agent are both busy on the phone selling colored photographs to magazines back home. <laughs> like it's, it's Roger saying, you know what? This music biz, there might be some 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 not so on the up and up characters uh, that we might have to be dealing with as we become more popular in this industry. Uh, it's it's a great um, it's a great melody, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like this song um, on the album. It's got that uh that catchy uh melody a, a lot of songs um from this era lack the traditional pop music structure of verse chorus verse and i think that's one of the reasons that pink floyd is such an interesting band to listen to is they're not beholden to the two and a half minute pop song format uh, of this of this era, um, but and in the era that was an allure for them. Yeah, uh, they definitely they definitely stood out against the the pack in that respect. Uh, and one of the one of the effects of that is yes, it makes the band interesting to listen to. It makes the albums uh, have a, a a sound that's all their own. I've mentioned it on the last track, and I think I mentioned it a few times in, in previous episodes. It, there are songs that I have a hard time recalling by name, and I think that's part of the reason why is like it doesn't have, um, you know, a, a melody that is uh, very hooky. It doesn't have that that pop sensibility where here's here's a little phrase that's going to get repeated over and over so that you recall how this song goes. Um, Cymbeline has that. It has that melody. It has that that, if you want to call it a chorus, it, it has a repeating uh, vocal line. It has a repeating vocal melody, um, but it has the other elements too, where it it, it does sort of swing in the wind uh, to a degree. Um, it swells the the energy of the song becomes greater when that chorus hits, and I think it makes it more memorable and it's not necessarily to detract from or take away from other songs that don't have that structure um pink floyd has has many songs that lack that structure that are excellent songs but um when the guys and when roger especially find that that hook um they can write a good song that has those pop sensibilities but also has the other foot in whatever whatever Pink Floyd is known or, or is thought of as being known for doing on the experimental side. This is a good cross between the two, I think. It's, I think it's notable to mention that this was another song, uh, like Green is the Color, that the band took uh, post of it being for the soundtrack and do it, they, they played it live. In fact, it's uh, on that QED performance as well. Um, and, um, it, uh, they used it, uh, they used their quadraphonic sound system for it as well. This is one of the ones that they would use to, you know, to, to freak out, not freak out the audience, but to impress the audience with the, with their quad, quad sound shops. Uh, it was a, it was one that they played live and kept using you know at least for another year or two after the movie itself yeah they they continued uh, to play it uh, all the way up until 1971 when they started to play 
early versions of what became Dark Side of the Moon, the Eclipse show. Uh, right. So, yeah, it, it, it had staying power long past other songs from this era. Yeah, and, and I agree with you as with the uh, is what you said as far as uh, the hooks and the a normal quote unquote sound stru- uh, song structure is concerned. Overall, it's just a catchy tune. Mm-hmm. You know, I find myself humming the chorus like you. I did listen back to uh, the album itself before we started this uh, program, and it's uh, it's one that is. It sticks in the head very, very easily. The chorus definitely sticks in the head. Yeah, it's as as far as the songs on the album go, it's the one that you're going to catch yourself singing to yourself later. Um, it 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 it, def- it sticks in your head. It's got a little bit of an earworm quality to it, um, and it's uh, it's it's one of the album highlights for me. I don't know uh what a symboline is or who symboline is um I, I think i read somewhere what that means but i still don't know and so do you have any any insight onto the nothing of nothing the title? that comes to mind <laughs> okay, and good. in fact when i was uh doing my prep for this show at one point i was going yeah let's do a search on that let's see what it turns up and then i, re- I it's uh, i kind of set it aside and did not do did not look it up. I don't really don't think it's important. Yeah, there's some there's some uh, Shakespearean connection, but I I I kind of like left that off to yeah. Someone and else can it sounded it, it sounded like it could be something from from Shakespeare, but it was you know I figured that if anything, it's if there is a Shakespeare connection, and maybe someone could tell us if there is, uh, then it was. You know, a nod to, you know, uh, Waters' classical upbringing. Yeah, we're just not we're just not that cultured, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we did. I don't know about you, but I did not grow up in Cambridge. I'm no. sorry to say. Also, no. Uh, also, no. Well, yep. Yeah, we just have to slog through life with our our non Cambridge upbringing. Oh well. Uh, sh- shall we move on to the final track on side A? For the soundtrack album out now. Uh, yeah, the uh, the final track on side A is called, creatively enough, Party Sequence. Right. It is a piece of music to accompany a party sequence. Um, in the yeah. film... There's a bunch of damn dirty hippies having a good old happening going on, and uh, some drugs are being taken, and some people are doing some far out dancing. And as far as music is concerned, this is uh, this is some some percussion, some congas, some uh, Indian uh, bongo type percussion instruments, and uh, it lasts for about a minute, and then it's it's done. Yeah, it's it's aside from Nick's uh, enthusiasm. If that is Nick playing, I think it is. Well, I don't know one way or the other. We may as well. Nick is the the drummer for the bands, so we're going to say it's Nick playing the drums there. Uh, it's uh, pretty much forgettable. It's uh, I, it, it definitely has a Moroccan flavor to it, and uh, Euro trash and North Africa smoking hash. That's pretty much what I got out of it. Yeah. And uh, although they're probably uh, in, as far as the movie is concerned, they're in France. But you know, uh, Morocco is just across from Gibraltar. So, <laughs> and in in the 
and in the film it's it's characters at the you know it's actors in that scene are playing the instruments it seems as though the sound we're hearing in the scene is coming from the actors playing so i don't know how much uh, of a pink floyd song this is or how much of a pink Flo- pink floyd performance this is but um yeah it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's a piece of music from the film they had some space on the record to maybe include a little snippet of it and so i i think it's more of just a little bonus and there's nothing really to um to dive too deep into on party sequence my only regret if as far as the party sequence cut is concerned is that of all the 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 Floyd music that is in this movie with a lack of the band Pink Floyd making a appearance in the movie I wish the Pink Floyd had been in this scene uh, it would be a natural bongos. spot for them to appear exactly just in the corner maybe not lit too well you know you could probably make out yeah that kind of looks like Roger Waters over there you know that sort of thing uh, that would have been a nice little touch but not to be it did not happen if I were if I had made this film well to be honest I never would have made this <laughs> film but if if I had I would have tried to get the band in at one point and this is the point I would have tried to, to shoehorn them in to make an appearance if only so I could put on the bill you know, you know the motion picture more starring Pink Floyd um, <laughs> it would be the Pink Floyd equivalent of a hard day's night. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, uh, with that, the needle goes up, and we pause to flip the record over. Please look out for our next episode where we go through side B, and we'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode. Until next time, this is Jerry and Al on the Vinyl Sideways Podcast. See you soon, and shine on. Shine on.